I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Now, everyone knows Bob Schieffer is a newsman, but not everyone knows how he became an anchorman. He wrote a song about it. Let's have a listen. Well, I left this job that I just took, started practicing my sincere look. They said I had the face of a man with heart. They wrote me some lines, taught me a style, drew a happy face on the script where I should smile, and the key demographics went right off the chart. I have to say they pay me good, a whole lot better than Stucky's ever would, and a cute little stage manager gives me all my cues. Selling tractor hats and pumping gas, that's all part of my long-ago past. Now I just sit there and read the news. So now you know, and here's Bob Schieffer. Today we're pleased to have Walt Mossberg on the podcast with us. He is a lifelong journalist, commentator, editor, began his career at the Wall Street Journal, where he covered national and international affairs for 18 years in 1991. He pivoted and create and write the personal technology column for the journal. Then in 2007, founded AllThingsD.com, uh, a website devoted to tech coverage. In 2013, he left the journal to found and run Recode, a tech website that has earned a reputation for breaking big stories out of Silicon Valley and having access to top technology executives. Recode was bought by Vox Media in 2015. He's now an executive editor at The Verge, Vox Media's tech site. He is also editor-at-large of Recode. Writes the weekly Mossberg column for both sites, often appears on television and radio to provide commentary, and has been awarded a prestigious Loeb Award for commentary, the first technology journalist to receive such an honor. Walt, uh, we're uh, really glad to have you today. You were actually at the creation of the podcast, were you not? Um, oddly, uh, I was. One of the things that I did with my partner, Kara Swisher, who you mentioned, was that we, uh, at All Things D, in addition to having the website, we had a conference. It was called the D Conference, and it attracted all the top leaders of technology and media, by the way. And among them were Steve, was Steve Jobs. And one early year at our conference, Steve Jobs introduced the idea of podcasts on iTunes on stage at our conference instead of in his usual uh, way of introducing things in his own events. And the funny thing was he, wanted, he needed an example. So about a week or two before the conference, he called me and he said, this is what I'm going to do if it's okay with you. I said, great. He said, but I need some content. I would like you to just read one of your columns into a microphone, and we'll use that to explain to the audience what a podcast is. And Steve Jobs being Steve Jobs, 
being a perfectionist, he sent essentially the guts of an entire radio station down to this hotel where we were doing the conference. And I sat in this room with five technicians. It was crazy. And I read my column, and he played it uh, through iTunes on stage. And yeah, that's where podcasts came from. And and, uh, there were some before that, but it really got solidified there. They are really a big deal now, though. They are really a big deal. They they were started, a bunch of people started them around the time he introduced this. Then I think it went quiet. It never stopped, but it never it never had much traction. And then the last couple, three years, it has just exploded again. Let's talk about uh, Silicon Valley first. What's going on out there these days? So what's the big news? I think the biggest thing, there are three big things, but the but the by far the biggest is artificial intelligence, which is a scary term for a lot of people and may wind up being scary. We don't know yet. We have very crude versions of it. Everybody who has an iPhone has Siri. That's an that's a crude version of artificial intelligence. You if you have Google, you have Google Now, that's a crude version of artificial intelligence. Uh, Amazon has a device called the Echo that sits in your house, waits for you to ask it a question and just tells you, you can say flash briefing, and you get the NPR, a short NPR newscast at any time you want, all day long. You get a flash. I don't know how many times NPR creates this for it, but it's very up-to-date. You can ask for sports scores. You can ask for weather. You can ask for recipes. You can ask it to set a timer. This is, we're, we're, we're at, in the very early batters of the first inning of this, but this is what everyone in Silicon Valley is working on in every way you can think of. And basically what you're talking about where this is going is teaching machines to think. You got it, Bob. It's exactly right. It's called machine learning. Facebook's deeply into it. Apple's deeply into it. Google's deeply into it. Amazon's deeply into it. And Microsoft is. And then there are a bunch of startups that, as always in Silicon Valley, we probably have never heard of. And one or more of them may become even more successful at it than the big guys. You know, uh, kind of the the arc or the overriding question we're trying to answer in our series of podcasts, and we're talking to people in all parts of the communications landscape, is is where is communications going? And I guess the overriding question we have is, are we better informed now? than we have ever been, or are we so overwhelmed with information that we simply can't process it? I think the answer is, and I remember thinking this as long ago as 1982. That's how long ago. That's when this thought first occurred to me because the very crude uh, pre-web internet services were out there like CompuServe. And I, I remember saying one day to my wife, oh my God, I can look something up in Poland from our basement. And of course, it's vastly better than that now. But the point is, we have much more at our fingertips. We have much worse curation. What was a newspaper? What is a newspaper? What is a a, a nightly news broadcast? What is a local news broadcast? They're curated bunches of of stories of journalism. The Encyclopedia Britannica was a curated attempt to capture most of the basic knowledge you would need about the world. Today, 
we have way more journalists, way more information providers, and way less smart curation. I want to go back to to your career. Uh, there was a time when people went to work at the Wall Street Journal, and they that was the, the top for them. Or That's people right. went to work at the New York Times, That's or right. they went to work at CBS News. That's right. I'm one of the few people around who, who stayed with the place where I went to work. I'd been a reporter before I got there, but that's where I always I wanted to work. I followed your career and, and admired you. And, yep. uh, you know, was there for, for 40, basically 40, 47 years. But I want to ask you, you pivoted from international affairs to writing your technology column in 1991. This was well before the dot-com era and all of that. Did you have a feeling something big was going on, or what caused you to make such a big pivot? I absolutely did. Um, I had been a hobbyist. So while I was covering, while I was the chief Pentagon correspondent, the deputy bureau chief, the chief international economics guy, the, the national security guy, all these things, all these Washington things for the Wall Street Journal, my hobby was computers. I have no background in it. I'm a political science major. I never even went to the computer building at college. But I just got interested in these little personal computers, and I began to uh, tinker with them, learn a little bit about uh, how they worked. And then when, they, when I could connect to the outside world, it was fantastic. I did that for about 10 years, and then I went to the managing editor of the Wall Street Journal, a guy named Norm Perlstein, who I suspect you I know. know. Yep. And uh, he said to me, what do you want? Just like an editor, you know, would. And, and I said, I, wanna, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to write a column about computers. He goes, what kind of a column about computers? And I said, well, I want to write one about that would explain it to average people because I think this is going to explode. I think this is going to explode. And I've just spent 10 years as a hobbyist, and it's been really hard. I've spent hundreds of hours learning this stuff, and people aren't going to have the patience for that. And so we have an opportunity here, and I think I'm the guy who can do it to explain it to them. And he loved the idea. He said, but, you, he said, but communism is collapsing. We know it's going to happen. I don't know. can't give you the date, but we can see it. I said, yeah, I agree with you. He said, so I'm not going to let you get out of the national security beat now. This was in 1990. He said, you have to give me one more year on the national security beat. Then I'll let you try this. And if it doesn't work, he said, if people don't like this column in six months, we're going to kill it. But if it is popular, you can keep doing it. And he kept his word. And and communism. Communism <laughs> on fell. Cue. I started my column. It turned out to be popular. And I been and then and I did it for twenty two more years. And I stayed at the Wall Street Journal a total of forty three years. Uh, but but they let me be entrepreneur. So that was being kind of entrepreneurial, which, by the way, I think is an important thing for journalists today. And it wasn't when I went to journalism school and started as a reporter. So I, I, that was my first entrepreneurial thing. My next entrepreneurial thing was, uh, as you pointed out in your uh, little bio, I started with uh, a, a, another Wall Street Journal columnist in Silicon Valley, uh, Kara Swisher, a thing called All Things Digital, which was part of the organization that owned the Wall Street Journal but separate from the journal. And it started as a conference, and it became this website. And that was entrepreneurial, and that kept me really busy and interested. And I kept writing my technology column in the paper, 
but I had this whole other life that was all internet. Uh, it was a website, we ran it, we hired people, other very good journalists, some very mostly younger than me. Everybody's always younger than me now. And um, they've always been younger than me, and, and still are. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, and then we ran and we ran this conference, and then we decided at the end of 2013 to take what we had done with all things D, and that it, it, it just had gotten too big in our minds to exist inside of Dow Jones, which was the company that owned the Wall Street Journal. So we mo- we went and got some investors and started our own company. Let's bring in Andrew. Andrew? Thank you, Bob. And, you know, Walt, Bob's the Cal Ripken Jr. of the news business. I understand. He's been been with the same team for his whole career. You were almost with the same team for your whole career. That's right. But like you said, you became entrepreneurial, which is extremely unusual, even today, for a journalist. How did you have the courage to do that? How did you have the interest to do that, the foresight? Because when you're saying you were entrepreneurial, you and Kara have tr- you know really created an entire media company. Tell me about that. Well, I think we created two media companies. One we didn't own. We created it. Dow Jones owned it, but they let us run it. I mean, it's very odd to be a, an employee of a company and at the same time be a business partner of that company with a 25-page contract negotiated by lawyers about how you're going to run this business on behalf of this company, and that's what we did. And then we split it all off entirely. And uh, so why or how did I have the courage or she have the courage? I think some people would just say we were full of ourselves. Some people would say we were nuts. Uh, I mean, people would have a bunch of different explanations. But we saw that it worked. And um, we saw that the world was changing. But, But journalism was slow. It was slow. It was caught flat-footed, including, by the way, the journal. Uh, and Bob is right, by the way. When I got my job at the Wall Street Journal, coming out of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism in, I don't even want to say the year, but it was a long time ago. I mean, you either went to the New York Times. If, if you wanted to write, and broadcasting was a different thing. You wanted to go to CBS. If you wanted to be a, a print journalist, newspaper journalist, and you could get a job at the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal. That was the top of the pyramid. That was the pinnacle. Now, you, you were new, so you started in you know, maybe a lower position. But if you could get in there, my God, you were so lucky. You would take almost no pay. And believe me, I got almost no pay for, <laughs> for a while. You know. They knew you would work for no pay. Well, it wasn't no pay, but it was, you know, it was not great. And the point is... That was a wonderful thing until it became not, until the world changed, until all this information began flowing, until all the people who couldn't get jobs at CBS and at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times found they could just start their own website, their own blog, and their voices became added to the mix, and you had to compete with them. Uh, And I happen to be writing about technology, but I don't care if you were writing about the the Boston Red Sox, if you were writing about uh, uh, the Pentagon, if you were writing about the environment, it didn't matter. Somebody was out there with a website about those subjects who might be as good or better than you. And the, and the world just opened, and the editors of these newspapers, particularly and networks, by the way, the, particularly the prestige ones that were used to being on top, 
took them quite a while to figure this out. And we had a lot of discussions with the, with the editors, but more actually even more with the business people about what we thought they could do and should do or should let us do. And we just, that's why we left because we just felt we were never going to be able to grow the way we wanted to if we stayed. How do you think our culture has changed as a result of the way our communications landscape has changed? I mean, I'm talking about the coming of social media. It seems to me we've kind of redefined privacy for one thing. Uh, we've redesigned how we communicate with each other. Obviously, the way we get our news now. Uh, you know, I when I came to CBS, it was in the what I think is kind of the golden age of the gatekeepers. Uh, you know, you had the three networks, you had the big papers, the three that you have mentioned, and and good local newspapers. Yeah, you in did. most towns of any size, and it was from those places that people got their news. After the Kennedy assassination, uh, up until that point, most people had gotten their news from printed media. Uh, after that, television became right. the dominant media and remains so until we've come into the digital age. Now, you know, at CBS, we don't know where people get their news, but we know by the time the evening news comes along, they generally know what the headlines are. It seems to me that, that this has changed our culture in many ways. I think it's changed profoundly. I think it's hard to know all about how it's changed it while we're in the middle of it, and we're in the middle of it. Even the social media companies themselves are changing very important things about how they operate every six months to a year. Uh, it's one of the things, by the way, that attracted me to technology writing is everything changes so fast. So if you're documenting that or evaluating that or analyzing that or explaining that, it's much better to be in a situation where things are changing than where things are static. I think... Uh, we have redefined privacy, I think in some cases to our detriment. I think in other cases, I mean, you know, my kids, uh, maybe your kids, if you have them, uh, and people even younger than my kids have a whole different view of privacy. They just don't care about a lot of things that I care about. Uh, I consider private. So that's one thing. I think the culture has been coarsened a great deal, and that's not just uh, tech and the internet, uh, it's, the culture has just been coarsened a lot. Uh, you go on Twitter, I'm on Twitter all day. There's wonderful things on Twitter. Even with the 140 characters, there's very smart people putting up very interesting links to very interesting articles about this campaign, for instance. Uh, but there's, but if you put up something that somebody on one side or the other perceives as against their candidate, you're likely to get attacked in a way that is uh, not civil, in the, even in the broadest definition. Well, I mean, I, I think, for example, I think the coarseness of this campaign, part of that has to be the result of, of social well, media. Well, Trump is campaigning on Twitter, Yeah, primarily. I mean, there was a fascinating article, and, I, and I, honest to God, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was a great piece about how Hillary Clinton's convention, the Democratic convention, was actually an extremely well-run, extremely engaging convention for television. That's, and you know that that's what the conventions have been sure. for 30 years at least. I mean, there were time, was a time, which I remember and I know you remember, when they actually went and had many ballots and a lot of negotiating. But, you know, for the last, let's say, 30 years, it's been a television event. 
they did a great job of doing a television event. It was fantastic. The speeches were beautiful. The they you know they had vignettes. They had entertainers. They had all kinds of great things. Trump's convention was a bunch of outrageous charges and others just provocative that were meant to be tweeted, that were meant to fit in 140 characters. I don't know whether they planned it this way, but that's what it, you know, there were 10 tweets out of Giuliani's speech. Just, he had, his whole speech was, you know, doom and gloom and, you know, this is the, this and the Demo Obama has done this, whatever it was, you know, and Trump himself. I mean, his acceptance speech was very Twitter-focused. And his whole campaign has been like that. There are days he does 10 or 12 tweets. And you really have the—I have the feeling that he dictates them to somebody or he—I don't know how computer literate or phone literate he is, but somehow it genuinely sounds like his voice in those tweets. Hillary Clinton may have the same number of tweets, but she has a whole staff, a whole social media staff, which is what President Obama had when he ran and, and, and what Mitt Romney had and so forth. This is different. So social media— is at the heart of our politics actually right now. And the political debate, the best political reporters write their thousand-word story, do their two minutes on the air on the evening news or the, the morning news or a longer piece on something like maybe 60 minutes. But they're also on Twitter and Facebook, and I should mention Facebook, which is way bigger than Twitter, by the way, but a little less the political cauldron. These reporters... To stay relevant, they tweet all day. Yes. And they have to. And the same with tech reporters like me. We tweet all day. Same with sports reporters. I mean, there's, and, and then the politicians, the athletes themselves, the entertainers themselves all tweet. You know, I think one of the most uh, difficult things to deal with uh, as journalists and also for people who are news consumers is the vast amount of just false information. That, that they they now have access to. I, I had uh, I got a, um, a, a thing uh, from a friend of mine that I was in high school with, and he said, uh, you know, he said, I, I'm just stunned. said, I never realized that John Brennan uh, had converted to Islam, John Brennan being the director right. of the CIA, of course, uh, when he was a, a case officer in Saudi Arabia. Well, you know and I know that that is absolutely false. Absolutely false. false. If if you if you go to the internet and you Google John Brennan, you'll find these things. And as best I could trace it down, I had never heard this. I knew it was it could not possibly be true, uh, but apparently there was a disgraced FBI officer who had been forced out of the FBI that first raised this question. And once it was out there, it was just taken, and you know other people picked it up. And, and over and over, I, I think we see things like this. It's this a really— False by design. It's a really big problem. In the old days, uh, and old, I mean, not ancient days, but up to, you know, the seven, the late 70s, the not, let's say the 90s, really, the early 90s, uh, you knew there were three and then eventually four big television networks. Uh, you knew that their news shows were— uh, nobody thought their news shows were biased. Some people preferred Cronkite. Some people preferred Huntley and Brinkley. Now I'm really dating myself, but you know, they didn't. Nobody thought. I don't remember ever reading or hearing. Well, Cron uh, you know, I know Cronkite went against the Vietnam War at one point, but he did it in a journalistic way. Nobody ever said he's a Democrat. 
and Huntley and Brinkley are Republicans or they're Democrats and he's a Republican. You, know, you never had that. And as, as for the newspapers, even the Wall Street Journal, which had a very well-known conservative editorial page, we had a really strong hermetic line there church, between state. church and state. I wrote pieces that absolutely disagreed with the editorial page again and again. Nobody stopped me. Nobody stopped me. I never heard a word. Never. Uh, and you never heard – I mean as a tech reporter, I can assure you I gave bad reviews to products by companies that spent m tens of millions in advertising with the journal and I never heard a word. Uh, and that was a, that was a great thing. I think today uh, the world is different and I just want to give a plug for something I got, have gotten involved in. I'll be super quick that goes right to this point. There's a thing called the News Literacy Project. It's here in Washington. It's a nonprofit. I'm on the board. I'm not a great board member, but they put me on the board. Um, it had uh, it works with high school, public school systems, high schools particularly, to teach classes. They're now online classes. Uh, they actually have journalists occasionally going into the classroom. I've done this to talk about how to know what to trust. How to know what to trust? Who wrote this? I mean, just a simple question of telling the high school kid, you might want to wonder where this came from and then make your decision. I mean, you know, they can be whatever political persuasion they want to be, but understand the context. Who wrote this? How many sources are there? Are any of the sources named? You know, on and on. Just, just a little bit of way to, to judge the thing. It's incredible that we need an organization like that now. It is, but I mean, uh, and it's small, but they've got a bunch of high schools in New York. Chicago. I think I think the numbers they said they recently uh, said they served about twelve thousand students. Now that's small in the terms of the nation, but it's a start. And I don't know what the how, what the kids are getting out of it, but I think they're getting a lot a, a lot out of it. Well, what do you think news organizations, you know, especially newspapers, need to do uh, nowadays to adapt to technological change? Um, I think newspapers, and I'm talking about all of them, not just the big ones we mentioned, have to basically redefine themselves entirely as digital organizations with a print expression of the news as almost a sideline. I mean, it's a profitable sideline for the dwindling number of people that want to take the print edition and the dwindling number of advertisers that want to be in there, it's probably still more profitable. You would be surprised how hard it is to make money on the web. I mean, you, we all know it's really hard to make money in print, and it's really hard to make money as a local TV station, but it's actually also hard to make money on the web. But if I were any of these newspapers, including the one I started at, the Providence, Rhode Island Journal, that's where I started, that newspaper had six Pulitzer Prizes when I was a copy boy there. Uh, and it was a 250,000 circ paper. It's probably much smaller now. In, a, in the smallest state in the country. And they were able to win Pulitzer Prizes. They did quality journalism. Uh, they should just be a website. And I'm not saying they should stop printing the paper, but they should think the paper is an ancillary business. They should be doing podcasts. They probably are. I don't know. They should be doing podcasts. They should be doing web video, Facebook video, uh, uh, Twitter video, and they and they should be uh, and they should be doing web. Even a website is becoming an obsolete thing. Did you know that, Bob? No. Here's why: Facebook, Google, and Apple 
have all started news platforms. And you, uh, particularly in Facebook, because it's so uh, omnipresent, uh, people are redoing their news stories to run instantly on Facebook without linking you back to the website. They're called instant articles. My columns uh, are, are in that category because the company I work for was an early partner with Facebook on this. And so if you click on the link to my column, that you, if you find it in Facebook, it doesn't take you back to the Verge website or to the Recode website where it ran. It just runs inside Facebook. And by the way, it loads instantly. That's why it's called Instant Articles. You, uh, you are generally, uh, the pieces you write are long form and pretty technical. Uh, who exactly are you writing for? Well, they're not that, first of all, they're not that technical. I'm writing for the, uh, here's who I'm writing for. And it's a little different than when I started. When I started, I was writing for the person who knew nothing about tech. They weren't necessarily afraid of computers. They might even have some at work, but they were going to have one in their house and their kids were going to need to know how to use them. And so my job was to say, this is the best computer to buy or buy this program or don't buy this new thing that you see all over the airwaves and ads and all over print ads. It's no good. I've tested it. It's no good or it's overpriced. Buy this other thing. Or here's an explanation of the tech jargon you're seeing. That's what I started doing. Now I'm now those people are more sophisticated. So I'm writing a little more technical, a little more sophisticated. And I'm like I wrote a piece about how hard the new kind of TVs are to actually operate. The <laughs> picture's great, but figuring out all the hundred features in there and the user interface for it is ridiculous. I get my grandkids to do it. You that's, get your grandkids to do it. That's the shortcut. So that's an example. Uh, <laughs> I can't. I, I did it. not have to explain high-definition television or, you know, as I would have 20 years ago, but I did get flooded with tweets and emails and all kinds of things saying, yes, you're right, I bought this new TV, I can't figure it out, you know, that kind of thing. Let me ask you this. Uh, in your biography uh, on uh, Recode, you present uh, the following ethics statement. You say, and these are your words, I'm not an objective news reporter and am not responsible for business coverage of technology companies. I'm a subjective opinion columnist, a reviewer of consumer technology products and a commentator on technology issues. Uh, in this podcast, we have addressed the fact that while it's hard to be completely objective, which you admit, uh, you can still be fair, which I've always thought it's much easier to be fair than it is to be objective. But I want to ask you, in this new world, what is objectivity anymore? What's your definition of objectivity? I agree with you. I think the thing to be is to be fair. So, for instance, if I'm reviewing a product, or like this television, if I'm commenting on it, I contact the company. And if I have a few questions about what do they mean by this when they make this claim, I, I get them a ch give them a chance to answer it. If something goes wrong with it, I give them a chance to answer it, that kind of thing. Uh, I still, uh, I, I'm like a movie reviewer. A movie reviewer is an objective. The movie reviewer isn't saying Sony Pictures released a movie. It stars XYZ. It's about this. This is the title. This is when it opens. Boom, end of review. No, that's not what they do. They say, this movie stinks or this movie's great, or this movie's kind of in between, or it's a lot like this other movie, whatever. It's their opinion, and 
Different reviewers will have different opinions. But you try to be fair. If you think the movie, uh, the director uh, did something that was really annoying through the movie and you can contact the director, a good reviewer might say the director defends this by saying this, and that's being fair. And that's what I try to do. Let's talk about Recode for a second. Recode's been an extraordinary success by any measure. Um, in 2015, it was bought by Vox Media. Right. This is your baby. How, how have things changed since Vox bought it? Do you think it's lost any of its edge or any no, of its street actually, cred? No, I mean, just this week, Recode uh, broke two or three big stories. Um, uh, Recode is really about the business of technology. And we, had a, we used to also cover the products themselves, which I did a lot of, and I had a great team, a uh, small team that did it. We've moved in, when we merged with Vox, when Vox bought us, we took that product team and moved it to The Verge, which was an existing tech site they had that was more product focused. So Recode is the business of tech. It's like the sale of Yahoo to Verizon. What went on really inside that sale? What's gonna happen to Marissa Mayer, who's the, you know, the head of Yahoo? Uh, it's like um, an analysis of the business problems of Twitter, whereas The Verge would do more of an analysis. Or I, for instance, I wrote a comp saying Twitter is way too hard to use for an average person. And Rico would, would ran that column, of course, because I run in both sites. But they, they also, their, their reporter covering Twitter is much more about, uh, you know, uh, their earnings weren't, as predicted this quarter, and how are they growing, and are they going to be bought, and all those kinds of things. So the, by becoming part of Vox, Vox is, think of Vox as like Time Inc. or Condé Nast in the publishing world, which maintained a lot of separate magazines that had editorial independence, but they had a common sales force and a common kind of business side to them. That's what Vox Media is. It has a uh, common, you know, reams of developers and salespeople and people that all the websites can benefit from, but they're editorially independent. And so now Recode is one of them. But you mentioned earlier, uh, we were talking that, you know, maybe one day soon, news organizations might not even need a website. With Vox, you've got eight different websites. So yeah. what's going to happen with Vox? Well, what Vox is doing is, is moving all those, uh, keeping the websites for now, I don't know, maybe in 10 years they, they won't have what we today call websites and they'll just have journalists doing articles that run elsewhere. But right now Vox is at the leading edge of publishing all of our stories on Facebook, on Apple News, on Snapchat, on uh, Google's got a, a new uh, platform that shows up in search results. If your article shows up in a Google search result, it may be instantly openable inside Google not cut, by the way, not edited, not touched in terms of what was in it, but just right there. These are just different platforms for people, for audience. Yeah, it's to, a lot to, of work for the, for the technical people because the, the publishing details behind it, each of these platforms is different. There's no standard. The web is at least a standard. So publishing's really changing. In the last year or two, it's changed again with this off, it's called off-platform publishing. And there's a real danger, by the way, Facebook right now and Apple and all these other guys are giving the publishers a very good economic deal in terms of the advertising, splits, and all that. That could change. You're, if you become at the mercy of Facebook, that's where your traffic's all coming from. 
and they decide to change the rules, you're screwed. So, Walt, what does this do to journalism? You know, I like to say it's a good time to be a journalist because you can just do start start your own website in about 10 minutes with no te technology knowledge. Uh, but it's a bad time to be a publisher or the owner of a, uh, a broadcasting or print operation. It's a very tricky time to do that. It's a tricky time. Of course, Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post, he's so rich it doesn't matter. But if that was your main business and you had you know, your shareholders' main investment, it's, it's tricky to navigate it. To be a journalist, you can probably find work at not great pay, but you can probably find work almost anywhere. You can get your voice on the web. You can make up fake stories about John Brennan and publish them. You know, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and that wasn't true. I mean, my getting, like I said, my getting a job at the Wall Street Journal, I, we, we, uh, they hired, uh, I think, five people out of my class at Columbia. The Post probably hired four or five. Um, it was a great thing uh, to get those jobs. What happens in this journalism landscape now if publishers are having less control than they ever had before because they need to go to where the audience is on Facebook? It's a great question, and it's just beginning, so it's really hard to tell. But look, I know Mark Zuckerberg, I know Sheryl Sandberg, I know Tim Cook. I, I don't say that to sound braggy. It's just my job. I know these people. Um, none of those people I just mentioned are – same with Sundar Pichai, the head of Google. None of these people are bad people. Uh, actually, they every, every one of them that I just mentioned actually understands the value of a vibrant press. It just so happens they do. Steve Jobs was like that too. Um, but they're all in business, just like the publishers were all in business. Now, let's not forget that we had a lot of bad publishers, even in the glory days, even before there was any internet. We had a lot of bad publishers. I, I remember when I started uh, as a reporter, there were something like 17 or 1,800 daily newspapers in the United States, and I would say 1,500 of them were mostly garbage. Uh, if the used car dealer in your town did not want you to write a story, if some young, you know, idealistic reporter decided to write a story about the ripoffs down at the used car dealer, and that was the biggest advertiser in the paper, there were a lot of newspapers that would kill that story. So this is not like... It used to be holy, and now it's awful. Having said that, we've never quite seen this experience where the actual publishing decision is in some way – you can imagine what we've – based on what we've just begun to see, you can imagine in three, four years, five years that some of the publishing decisions and economic architecture underlying it uh, may be in the hands of somebody that has nothing to do with – doesn't employ the reporter, has nothing to do with the website, just is a social media network or an Apple's case. You know, it sells a lot of devices with this built into it. Same with Google, you know, search engine. I think it could have profound implications for the democracy to put that much power in the hands of a handful of companies. If you think the Koch brothers and their equivalents on the Democratic side that have a lot of money uh, have an undue influence on democracy, think Think about what would happen if the places most people turn to for most of even what you would call their reputable journalism 
are reduced to four or five or three or four. I, I think that's just – even though they're run by decent people today, I think just, just organically that's a scary thought. Should we be worried? Yeah. We should be worried about it. But if I'm running Vox Media, if I'm running the Washington Post, if I'm running the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or CBS right now today at this moment, um, Facebook instant articles and Facebook live video, by the way, which is another thing, uh, where they pay the news organizations to make a video that only can be viewed on Facebook. Uh, and by a video, I mean, there is, really isn't that much difference even in the production values of the videos that you can now get. We have a studio over at Fox, which didn't exist, by the way, 10 years ago, this company. We have a video studio over there that's probably putting out, you know, in terms of technical quality, it's capable of putting out a video about as good as the CBS Bureau is. I mean... But if those things are all accessible only if you're on Facebook, only if you're on Twitter, only if you're on Apple's news, only if you're on Google uh, someplace, I think we should worry about it. We should, but we should also remember the truth as a way of outing. If, if something's true, it, it's kind of like water seeping through the cracks. And maybe if there's only one outlet. It finds a way, and yeah. then somebody finds out about it, and somebody. Yeah, and else I should does. I should quickly note that none of these I said these people are run these companies are run by decent people. But there's just, one more thing I should say, which is none of the terms, none of these news organizations would be doing this if these companies had anything to do with screwing around with the editorial. I mean, I still write my column, I write whatever I want, an editor edits it. We argue about it. This has been going on since the dawn of time. A column emerges, and I'm usually fine with it. If you have a good editor, you know this, Bob. A good editor actually makes you better. And so the column comes out. Uh, it's, it's identical on Facebook as it is if you went to the website, if you went to Recode, if you went to The Verge, if you went to Apple News. Wherever you went to it, it's the same column. So nobody's screwing around with the editorial. But if you have somebody eventually acquires most of the power over the publishing, I don't know what could happen. Maybe subtle. Maybe that somebody at Facebook someday in eight years says to somebody at the New York Times, hey, you know, this is a good article, but it's really – we've noticed our readers really only want to read 212 words. That's it. They really only want to read 212 words, and most of your articles are coming in at 912 words. So you do what you want, but in terms of page views, and which lead to the advertising revenue you need, uh, you might want to cut these articles to about 212 words. I could imagine that happening easily. I don't think it's happening now, but I could imagine it happening. I know you don't uh, uh, cover politics per se, but as an expert on tech, can I ask you about the Hillary Clinton email Sure. Issues. Was that dumb or was it intentional or how did that come about? Well, I think it was intentional uh, and I think it was dumb. Uh, I think it came about because they were so much in a defensive crouch uh, about, you know, they felt, you know, remember the vast right wing conspiracy comment? I mean, they just felt constantly under attack. And so. I gather he had had an email server once he left the White House, and she just kind of glommed onto that. Uh, 
I think it was uh, I think it was dumb because once you're Secretary of State, you're in the classification system, and you really ought to wrap yourself into that. Now, you know, Bob, I'll bet anything you will agree with what I'm about to say. Maybe not. Tell me. Uh, but I know I learned this when I started covering the Pentagon. The classification system in the U.S. government is grotesquely uh, uh, overdone and ridiculous. People, too many people can classify things, and too many instances of classification are not really to protect the national security. They're really to cover people's butts or to prevent some political embarrassment or to just err on the side of secrecy. I once did an investigative story about uh, – kickbacks on arms sales to Egypt and did it with another guy at the journal and we petitioned for months to get certain uh, invoices, I think they were, and it was a FOIA request and they kept saying no. And we published the story anyway eventually. We had enough information and actually it caused the resignation of an Air Force general and some other things, some hearings. And then months later, we got a box from the State Department with the things we had asked for, but not many of them. But the first thing on the top of the box was our own article that had been published on the front page of the biggest circulation newspaper in the country at the time, and it had been marked classified, and then it had been declassified to meet our request. How could you classify an article on the front page of the Wall Street <laughs> Journal? Well, I'll tell you how. And, and this, this uh, and I guess we ought to close here pretty quick, but it, it, your story reminds me of one of my favorite stories when I was covering the Pentagon, and this was in the wake of the Pentagon Papers uh, scandal, and of course those were all classified secret. And one day, um, it's been some weeks or months after that, I walked down to the mall in the Pentagon, in the which was one uh, of the first malls in America. It's I in the basement exactly of the mean. Pentagon. I walked by the bookstore, and I saw this long line of people, some in uniform, lining up to buy a book. And I thought, well, I wonder what that's all about. And I went over there and discovered that <clears throat> some publisher – commercial publisher had published the Pentagon Papers right. and put them on sale, and they were on sale for anyone who wanted to buy them in the mall in the basement of the Pentagon. I went and got a camera crew, interviewed the people in the line, and did a story that night for the evening news because upstairs in the Pentagon, the same Pentagon Papers were still classified top secret and were being kept under lock and key. Yeah. Walter Cronkite called me after the broadcast, and he said, Bob, if you hadn't had pictures of that, I would have thought you just made it up. I couldn't <laughs> believe that that was true. But it's always been one of my very favorite yeah. stories about the overclassification of just about everything. And now they have thing. retroactive classification. Yes, which we found which out about during quite the Orwellian. Clinton investigation. Well, Walt Mossberg, we want to thank you for a very entertaining and informative uh, time with us here on this podcast and you were there for one of the first ones so now you're here for the things that have come after that well thanks for having me i've admired you for a long time oh and well I'm honored to be in your presence thank you so much and uh, for andrew schwartz this is bob schieffer if you like this podcast leave us a review on itunes visit us at csis.org and check out the schieffer college of communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu